0: Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Sestouli. In this edition of Fangraphs Audio, we present a couple of audio dispatches, courtesy David Lorilla, the curator of our excellent Q&A series. Specifically, these dispatches come from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where the 42nd Sabre Conference was held at the Marriott City Center. To say that the Sabre Conference this year was a merry event would indeed be an exercise in understatement. And what follows, Lorla interviews two gentlemen who had quite a lot to do with the aforementioned Mary event. First, in what follows, you will hear an interview with Vince Gennaro, who is not only the current president of Sabre, but also author of Diamond Dollars, The Economics of Winning in Baseball, a consultant to a number of MLB teams, and a regular guest on the MLB Network's Clubhouse Confidential. Following him as gentlemen you have perhaps cursed aloud without even knowing it. His name is Stu Thornley, his official scorer in charge of Minnesota Twins games and is the chair of the Minneapolis chapter of Sabre, who indeed were the hosts of this most recent and most excellent event. I invite the very handsome and bespectacled reader to listen to the interviews which follow with Sabre president Vince Gennaro, an official scorer and Sabre chapter president of Minneapolis, Stu Thornley.
1: We are at Sabre 42, the national convention in Minneapolis, which is beginning to wrap up. Uh, this conversation is happening on Saturday night. Uh, we do finish early on Sunday. Vince, what are some of the highlights of this year's conference?
2: Well, it's been a terrific conference here out in Minneapolis, and uh, we had a, a great uh, talk by Dave St. Peter, the president of the Minnesota Twins, who talked a lot about. The building of Target Field and what it means to the organization, talked a lot about the loyal Twins fan base and a host of other topics. We also had the opportunity to hear General Manager Terry Ryan be interviewed with a one-on-one on on, on Friday morning, and that was also very interesting and very informative, talked about a wide range of things in terms of early in his career, where he started, the length of time he's been with the Twins, the value of continuity in an organization's leadership, which the Twins clearly have had in in terms of their farm director, player personnel, and scouting people. Um, we also had uh, the usual complement of terrific research presentations, and overall, it's been a uh, you know it's been a great, a great three or four days.
1: And we had Roland Hemond earlier today. Roland is, of course, a great speaker.
2: That's right. We had uh, the legend Roland Hemond, who is uh, you know winner of the Buck O'Neill Award, and uh, which was given to him at the Hall of Fame during the induction ceremony last year. Uh, and Roland, uh, who is currently with the Diamondbacks, uh, his career dates back to. Uh, joining the Boston Braves in the 1940s, and it's just a, a treasure to have him come to our conventions year after year and hear him speak and tell his stories of what it was like in the early days and how the game has changed and how it stayed the same.
1: You did a presentation of your own, which we will get to in a few minutes, but let's talk a little about Sabre. How many people were here, and where did they come from?
2: Well, we had about 500 uh, attendees this year, which is uh, pretty typical for us these last several years. We had people from all over the country and really all over the world. I actually met a gentleman last night when we were at the Twins game who's attending his first Sabre convention, and he's from Adelaide, Australia. Uh, so uh, you can see we, can draw, we draw from from far and near, it's, uh, and it's a great group. Uh, with that one common bond, uh, a lot of different baseball interests, but that common bond being the passion and love for baseball.
1: That is one thing that listeners should probably know, that part of that bond is the baseball happens more than just the presentations during the day. We're speaking in the evening. Right now there are a lot of Saberites up in the lobby bar just sitting talking baseball it's just it's really a a great atmosphere
2: well you're absolutely right and it's um, I don't think anyone who has an interest in baseball of any kind would be turned away or feel unwelcome in any way uh, by the Sabre group Um, our interests are diverse everything from the arts in baseball to uh, statistical analysis, to the 19th century. One of the projects that the organization is working on right now are, are the 100 Greatest Games of the 19th Century, which will be coming out in book form. So you can see the variety of interest that we have.
1: And we don't have a date yet, but next year's convention will be in Philadelphia?
2: That's right. Sabre 43 will be next summer in Philly, and of course, we'll wait till uh, late September or the 1st of October to name the date once the baseball schedule comes out for next year so that we can ensure that there's a Phillies home game.
1: And once again, I'm here with Vince Gennaro. To close, Vince, you're very active in baseball beyond just simply saber. So let's talk about the presentation that you gave.
2: Yeah, I gave a presentation this year on uh, some value strategies that teams employ to get a bigger bang for their buck as they assemble their rosters. And I talked about things like like the value you can get in buying uh, platoon players, particularly left-handed platoon players, who since since right-handed batters, uh, right-handed pitchers rather throw 73% of all pitches or thereabouts, you can get a three-quarter player essentially with a left-handed platoon player, and really get a, a great savings off of a complete player who can play against both sides of the uh, of the uh, of, you know both pitchers, righties and lefties. Uh, I also talked about um, a topic that I've been researching lately, which is what is the optimal timing for trade deadline deals? It's, it's the balancing that, that time on the calendar sometime between late June and, and the end of July when the deadline comes where you have enough information about how competitive you'll be as a team but haven't let too much time come off the calendar in terms of the value that you can get from either acquiring a player to help you make the postseason push or dealing a player and getting prospects back, uh, because you know the time is ticking. So those are those are just a couple of, uh, of thoughts. I also talked about uh, uh, pricing and valuing risk in terms of assessing player performance. So all things related to getting value for teams.
1: And once again, hyping uh, next year's saber conference and the organization in general. The presentation that Vince gave. There were many. Maybe not quite like it, but great minds in baseball. All week, it will happen next year in Philadelphia. Uh, Vince, thanks a lot for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. Dave. My guest is Stu Thornley, official scorer for the Minnesota Twins. Uh, Stu, is that really an accurate way to put it? Should I maybe say that you're the official scorer at Major League at, at, Baseball? Major and that's League a good
3: point. Because while we do Twins home games, we are hired by Major League Baseball. So I oftentimes try to say it that way. I'm, I'm an official scorer for Minnesota Twins home games. And the distinction's important, and people ask that a lot. Are we employed by the team or the league? And we're employed by the league, uh, and so which means we are working for the league and not to be trying to favor a particular team.
1: So you really don't give uh, favorable calls. to Fans listening to, the, to this are going to think the home team always gets the base hit.
3: Right, and uh, there's a perception among the teams that uh, the home team always gets the call in all the other ballparks, so why don't they get it at home? But that's one of the things that all official scorers work hard to do is to be consistent. Uh, it depends on which team in the, in the field or at home or at, at, in the field or at bat. It doesn't matter. Uh, make the calls the same way. But, of course, sometimes if you do make a call uh, and you call something a hit for the home team and it's it's borderline, then people are going to say, well, you're just favoring the, the home team. But we work very hard to try to be impartial on it.
1: Subjectivity. How subjective are official scoring decisions?
3: You know, you get calls that everybody can look at and see the same thing and have different opinions. And we're talking about qualified official scores. We were in New York this year for our meetings and looked at uh, 56 plays on DVD of calls that had been sent in to be reviewed by Major League Baseball. Teams can send calls in if they don't like the call and feel strongly enough about it. And as we went through all of these and we'd raise our hands or mark our sheets on whether we'd call it a hit or an error, there were so many that there was a widespread difference of opinion among the scores. People are qualified to do this. That indicates to me that while it's good that we get together to try to standardize calls and be, be more consistent, Uh, People just have to realize at some point that these calls are subjective and there isn't really a right or wrong answer on them. It's it's to make uh, a good call and try to be consistent with how you make the calls in general, how tough you are in calling errors. But uh, unlike, say, an umpire's call where maybe you can slow that replay down and show if the call was correct or incorrect, here uh, people can look at the same video and from the same angles but have different opinions on whether something should be a hit or, or should be an error. And that's always going to be the way it will be.
1: You were part of the official scorers panel at the Saber conference here, and it was mentioned that 18 of those calls were overturned. Of the 56, Yes. Uh, Greg Wong, who also works as an official scorer here, was quoted, and I will quote him directly here, in the panel discussion said, sometimes Joe Torre and the people in New York get it wrong.
3: Um, okay, I, um, right now Joe Torrey is the one looking at these plays. They had a review panel which they can still bring in. I don't think it was Joe Torrey doing this last year. Um, and my opinion is uh, I've had calls sent in and they've been upheld, and people will say, Well, you got the call right. And I say, Well, I didn't get it right or I didn't get it wrong. I think it just that it was upheld showed that it was a reasonable call. It could have been the other way, too. And either one would have been reasonable. Uh, Major League Baseball this year is getting a lot more plays sent in and that's because of a change in how they're doing things where it used to be a team would have to send the play in for review and the teams didn't want to abuse the privilege and and so they wouldn't do it too often and and now the players have the right to work through the Players Association to send a call in and Major League Baseball has been getting a lot more calls this year and as far as I know it's Joe Torre who will look at it and if he may render a decision himself, or he may call in a few other scorers. They have uh, review people in New York, former players and things like that, who can come in and look at a play and just say if they would have called it a hit or an error. And the standard for overturning a call is like an appeals court. You, It's not just a, a matter that, well, I would have called it differently, so we'll change it. There has to be strong feeling that the official score... Uh, well, that, that the, the other side just thinks that it should be overturned. But I, I really never look at things too much in a right or wrong uh, on subjective calls. Just is it reasonable or uh, was it a good call? And I've, I've made calls that I've said, that wasn't a very good call. And I, I may change it on my own, Or but, uh, but I certainly have a lot of calls that I feel strongly about was a, was a good call that other people will disagree strongly about.
1: Once again, I'm here with official scorer uh, Stu Thornley. Fewer errors are being ruled than, or scored rather, than there were a few decades ago.
3: Yeah, and I looked that up in the 60s. There was about 1.75 errors per game for both teams combined, and that's uh, down to about 1.25. So about half uh, half an error less a game, which is significant. But the question is why, and I think there's a big perception that the scores have gotten softer over the years, and same kinds of plays they might have called errors in the 1960s, they're calling hits now. And I really don't know. I was watching games in the 60s, but trying to base things on memory is pretty tough. The players have gotten better. Uh, I'm sure the fielding's gotten better, and in some ways that creates more errors. If you have a shortstop with a better range than a shortstop a while ago, uh, that player can put them in position to get an error. But if the throws are more accurate, and I still say the ability of first baseman to dig throws out of the dirt and save errors from their infielders on, on a throw that comes up in the dirt, uh, I think is probably pretty significant. And I, the, the first baseman, first, I think, are just more proficient at it, they're more skilled. But obviously that first baseman's glove has evolved and probably gotten easier for scooping throws out of the dirt.
1: There are rules involved in the scoring decision. Some of them I find quite interesting. There was a pitcher recently was ejected because of pine tar on his glove. He did not even throw a warm-up pitch, yet he is officially appearing in that game, but apparently not as a pitcher.
3: I believe that's what it is. You know, For us, what we would do is if somebody went into a game and but then came out right away, but now he's in the game so he couldn't come back and again, whether it's injury or ejection or anything like that. Um, we, we will just write up our box score at the end of the game and fax that into the Elias Sports Bureau. But there are some other rules on how a player gets credit for a game at a particular position and uh, they might have to look at that. Even things like consecutive game streaks, they're in the realm of the scoring rules, but Um, if somebody just comes into a game as a pinch runner, well, we list him in the game. But if that's the only thing that he does in the game and doesn't complete a plate appearance or a half inning in the field, if he had a consecutive game streak going, uh, that streak would be snapped. But that's something that we generally as a scorer don't have to to worry about. We'll just list the the player in there and, and let it go like that, and somebody else might have to decide on just how the statistics are credited with it.
1: Okay, and one final question for Stu Thornley. We could spend an hour here going over uh, nuance and calls. Uh, What are some of the calls that maybe aren't fair, things that you have to roll that fans may look at and think, well, no, that's not right?
3: The rule book even defines uh, where there can be unfairness. The classic example is a runner going from first to third on the single and a good throw from the right fielder comes into third, but it hits the runner and it skips away and there's additional advancement and that advancement has to be accounted for, and the only way you can do it is with an error, and the error goes to the right fielder who made a good throw. And the rules even acknowledge that this has to be done even if it's not fair. And, of course, it can go the other way where more than one player messes up a play. If you have a couple of fielders, watch the fly ball drop between them because they miscommunicated, uh, and, and the batter gets a hit because you can't really single out either player for an error. That's what the team error, which has been talked about for years um, that's where a team error would be helpful too. So, but the, the way I look at it, the the game often is unfair that a batter can hit a, a screaming line drive, but it's caught by the third baseman. Well, he probably deserved a hit on that, and he's out. Uh, on the other hand, a pitcher can fool a batter and get him to top the ball and not hit it very well, but he hits it so poorly it goes 40 feet down the third baseline, and nobody has a play on it. You can't give an error on that, and, and the batter gets a hit. So, uh, I guess the overall feeling is just any inherent unfairness that there is, with, whether it's with the scoring or just with what happens is the kind of thing that should balance out over the long haul.
1: One thing that I learned talking to you the other day is that uh, a player cannot be given a triple unless the runner in front of
3: him scores,
1: even if if he's standing on third base right. before the out is made.
3: Yeah, and so if a, if a well, if player is on anyways, but it could happen if a player is on first and a batter hits one up the gap, and gets the third on the play, not just on the throw home, but gets the third on his own. But if that lead, if that runner is thrown out at the plate, uh, well, it's, it's, I guess the, the feeling is, well, if that runner couldn't score, then you can't give a triple on it. So the batter would get only a double on that.
1: Stu Tharnley, thank you very much for your time.
3: Thanks, David.